last time I spoke here, I told the story of Chicken Little. And there is a point to the story, but I'll admit the story is made up. But I'd like to tell you a story again today, but this story is not made up. It's a true story. It took place about 3,000 years ago, but it remains as sore and as raw today as the day it happened. This true story was one of the two lowest points of David, king of Israel's life. One afternoon, while his army was in battle against the Ammonite forces at Rabbah, King David awoke from his afternoon siesta, and he strolled to the roof of the palace as the heat of the afternoon began to give way to the cool of the evening. And as he surveyed the scene, the houses of the city spread out before him, a movement caught his eye from one of the rooftops. He did a double take, recognizing what he was seeing. It was a young woman. He knew who she was. She was the granddaughter of one of his closest friends, a man named Ahitophel. She was also the wife of one of his bravest, most trusted warriors. She was beautiful, and there she was having her afternoon bath. He couldn't take his eyes off her, and... Of course, he was the king, and so he did what powerful men have done from ancient times. He commanded his servants to go to her and commanded her to come to his bed. Now, understand, this type of action was not unknown. In the epic of Gilgamesh, for example, Gilgamesh, the king, claims the right to have sexual intercourse first with every new bride in Uruk on the day of her wedding. And this idea and this practice continued with different variations from Sumerian times up through medieval times. But this was Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. And Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam, also one of his mighty men. And again, as I said, she was the granddaughter of one of his closest friends and confidants. Uriah, Eliam... Ahithophel, they loved David. They were loyal to him. And yet, to, to add insult to injury, to cover his action, David ordered this loyal, battle-hardened veteran, Uriah, to carry his own death order to Joab, making Uriah's comrades, his compatriots, his closest friends, complicit in his death. David was a man whom they trusted, this is a man for whom they would give their lives, their lives, and yet that day he broke their trust. Now, when we think of what David did that day and the trust that he broke, we can think very disparaging thoughts about David, certainly. But what about you? Have you ever practiced character assassination? Have you ever spread gossip about somebody behind their back, somebody who trusted you? Somebody who was loyal to you. Someone who, if they had been there, standing, listening, would have been horrified at what you said about them. Have you ever been dishonest towards someone or, or, or shaded the truth, perhaps, undermining their trust in you when they found out how you had approached the issue? Have you ever betrayed the trust that others have put in you? Have you proven yourself to be untrustworthy to God ever? I know I have. I know I have. And yet one of the most fundamental, one of the most core elements of any relationship is trust. To trust and be trusted. This is the title for my sermon today. To trust and be trusted. You know, there are so many important things that we can learn from the Bible. We can learn about God's plan for us. We can learn about who and what God is. We can learn the do's and don'ts of God's laws. But in order for any of that to be meaningful, there's a fundamental element that has to be in place in our relationship with God. And that element is trust. That's the foundation stone that has to be laid. That's a starting point for everything else. That starting point, again, is trust. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we see this from the very beginning of God's working with Adam and Eve because... When we read what Adam was commanded to do, we see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. 
But he commanded the man, saying, verse 16, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We read that, and then we read in the verses after this how Adam and Eve, in essence, if we want to encapsulate what was done here, in essence they said to God's ask, please trust me. Trust me. I know what is best for you. Just trust me. It was a simple ask. And Adam's answer, and Eve's answer, was also simple. It was basically, no. No. We don't. Their, rea- their actions revealed who they did trust, and it wasn't God. It was, it was Satan. But notice the two sides of the coin, however. Because... For the relationship between Adam and Eve and God to flourish, not only would it have required them to trust God, it also required for them to be worthy of his trust. Trust is like this. Anybody familiar with J.B. Weld? Thank you, gentlemen. J.B. Weld actually has two components here. By By themselves, if you take this, the black one, and you squeeze it onto a piece of wood, maybe you're trying to repair... Uh, a piece of wood that's come off a, a dresser or something. You put this on there and put it together with the other existing piece and it'll just come right apart. But you add this to it, mix them together and put those two pieces together and they're as if they're welded together. You need both. You need both. And this is the way it works with trust. You see, because trust, like JB Weld, is cemented through two components. There's, in this case, not only did Adam and Eve distrust God, but they showed themselves to be untrustworthy with the knowledge, the understanding, the opportunity that they had been given. How could God now trust them with anything else that he asked of them? How could he trust them? Because they were untrustworthy as they even didn't trust God. The ability to trust and to be trustworthy. When these two components are, are woven into a relationship, the bond is strong. If either one or both of these components are missing, though, there's suspicion and there's doubt, and the relationship really cannot survive, certainly not, not thrive. Hebrews chapter 11, our forefather Abraham was a powerful contrast to Adam and Eve's distrust. Hebrews chapter 11, and we read verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He trusted God. It says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of the promise, a promise as in a foreign country. Verse 9, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It's really simple. He trusted God. He didn't know exactly what God had in store for him. How could he have envisioned that his descendants would so thoroughly dominate the world economically, financially, politically, culturally? How could he have possibly imagined? If you think about that, if he were to be here today and simply look around... I think it would have been stunning for him to see the degree to which the promises that God made to him would be fulfilled. But he trusted God. He trusted God. Trust was the key. So let's analyze this issue then. What part our ability to trust and be worthy of trust, How what part that plays in our lives? And I'll focus first on trust and then on trustworthiness. So first I'd like to take part of the sermon to to reinforce from the scriptures the truth of what I'm saying. I'm not making this up. I'm not just bringing this out of thin air in a couple of anecdotes or examples, but what what the Bible says about trust. Okay, so let's go to Psalms. Let's go to the Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 4. And what I'm going to show you first is simply that God wants us to trust him. He wants us. He's commanded us to trust him. 
And we're going to focus on one slice of that first. He wants us to trust him as a foundation for our relationship. As a foundation for our relationship. Psalm 4, as an example. Psalm 4 and verse 5. Verse 4, rather. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. Be still. So yes, you're going to face emotional challenges. But he says, verse 5, he says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Very straightforward uh, instruction. Very straightforward command to put our trust in God. As a foundation for our relationship with God, we're required to put our trust in Him. That's what he says. Psalm 5, just continuing along the page here. Psalm 5 and verse 11. But let all those who rejoice, I'm sorry, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let them also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. A few psalms later, Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Verse 1, Psalm 37, verse 1, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. He says, For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as, a, as the green herb. And then he says, verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the, the desires of your heart. Commit your way to him. Again, he repeats, Trust also in him. And he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, he says, and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, sees from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret. It only causes harm. Trust in the Lord. We go over to Proverbs, just following the Psalms here. We go to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Don't add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So God's a shield to those who put their trust in him. So God wants us to trust him as a starting point for our relationship. He commands us to trust him. We flip to the New Testament because... We see this same theme as a thread throughout the Bible. I've just selected a few examples, but we read in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we go back to verse, oh, let's begin in verse uh, 11. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So he emphasizes that it requires, the the relationship requires trust on our part. We have to be willing to put our trust in God. And he says, verse uh, 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the spirit of promise. So we read Paul's words. And then later, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, we read Peter's words. And this time we see a highlight on, on ladies. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm breaking into the thought here about women and uh, attributes of godly women. And he says, verse 5, as, as the conclusion of this section, he says, For in this manner, in a, with a gentle and quiet, quiet spirit, as a good example, which is precious in God's sight, he says, For in this manner, verse 5, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. So it ties in modesty and a sterling example with women with trust. And he pairs it with trusting in God, adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So according to the Bible, God wants us to trust him. Pretty straightforward. I've beat this drum a number of times by simply going to scripture after scripture. Well, let's go, let's get a little bit more specific then. God wants us to trust him. Here's another little slice. God wants us to trust him then with our best interests. With our best interests. Let me give you an example of this. Let's go to Genesis 37. 
I think this is such a, a good example of this principle here. Genesis chapter 37, and we read the account here of Joseph and his sons, and specifically Joseph here. Become, Joseph becomes the, uh, the one on center stage, you might say. We see how all his brothers were resentful that his, his father loved him, that is Joseph, more than them. And we, we see verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Joseph had a tendency to rub people the wrong way, especially his brothers, when he told them he had a dream that one day he was going to rule over them and they were going to bow down to him. And I understand what that would be like. As an older brother, if my younger brother, who I've known virtually for uh, most of his life, I'm not exactly sure what that means, to know somebody virtually. I mean, in this day and age, I guess that, that means it's through some type of electronic media or something, but uh, but anyway, if 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 you have a, as an older brother, if you have a younger brother, says, hey, guess what, older brother, one day, one day, you, in fact, all of the family, including Ma and Pa, are going to bow down to me. Not something that really goes over very well, but Joseph didn't care, and or at least he he didn't know better. But for whatever reason, he. He he gave the dream. He was inspired to have this dream. And you know the story. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. Now imagine, imagine the sense of betrayal, of trust, being, well, some of his brothers wanted to kill him. And only the ones that had the least bad attitude towards him were the ones that said, well, let's sell him into slavery. At least that's better than killing him. Well, not a whole lot in a sense, right? Okay. But imagine if you were Joseph. Imagine the sense of betrayal of those closest to you and what that would have been like. But the story goes on, doesn't it? Because we we read the story of Joseph and what happened, how he was a slave in Egypt in chapter 39. And in chapter 40 and 41, how ultimately he was brought from from the dungeon after bearing through who knows how many years. We can try to make some calculations here. But of being... Being in the, in, the, in the dungeon, having to endure this, this back and, and forth between being brought forward a bit in Potiphar's house and then back down. Okay, he went through a lot here. But we come to chapter 45. We come to chapter 45. And this is the end of the story where his brothers then come to Egypt because they need food. And, and I've wondered, maybe um, some of you have a better answer for this, but I, because I don't, I don't know exactly. I'm just now, I'm just thinking what it would have been like. And I've always wondered, why did not, why did not Joseph go back and visit his family? Now, certainly he had the power to do so, and now he wasn't now in the dungeon anymore. He was a ruler in Egypt, a very powerful ruler in Egypt. Now, I can, I can understand why he wouldn't go back to visit his brothers. They got off on the wrong foot many years before. When they sold him into slavery. That's understandable. But why would he not go back and visit his father? He loved his father. And yet, what, what I'm going to contend is that the hurt, the betrayal, the, what he endured with his family, giving him up, act, actively trying to have him killed and then sold into slavery, was so profoundly hurtful to him that he wanted nothing more to do with his family. In fact, even his love for his father was superseded by the sense of betrayal that he felt toward, toward, toward his brothers. Perhaps that's why. Because he did not. We know he didn't go back all those years. Finally, his brothers come to him. So this, the hurt was deep. The sense of betrayal of trust was deep. They come back to him, and he goes through this soul-searching about how to deal with this. And we come to chapter 45, and I'm reading the end of the, of the story here. After he's toyed with his brothers a bit by putting, you know, sending, selling them the grain, sending them off, but putting their money back in the bag, so now they look like thieves, and all these episodes, these things that we read here, he's had some fun with them. But it was, it was mean fun, wasn't it? This was mean fun. But we find in, in chapter 45, it all came to a head. And, and you see why. And we see the spiritual maturity on the part of Joseph that rises to the surface. He says, verse 45, Then Joseph could not restrain himself, chapter 45, I'm sorry, could not restrain himself, 
before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. The truth came out. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. This was anguish, happiness, but also all of the the hurt that had built up through the years was there. And he says to his brothers, verse verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Then Joseph said to, rather, uh, verse, uh, uh, verse 4, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother. And he added something just in case they had forgotten. Whom you sold into Egypt. You think it wasn't on his mind? <laughs> so he said, verse 5, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Do you think he remembered? I think so. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity. You, do, you, do you see the depth that he went through, the depth of emotion he went through in order to get to this place where he saw a bigger picture of what was going on? No matter that he had had to endure all the, 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 the hurt and the betrayal and all that, he saw a bigger picture that did not just involve them, it involved God. And he said, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father or a, a, a head of state, not by birth, but someone who has, um, the, the sense of this word is someone who has the responsibility of protection over people. And, and so he says, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So he, he came to understand that God had his best interests at heart, ultimately. Now that takes a lot of trust, doesn't it? When we endure trials, when we endure, uh, humbling, when we endure what all the, trials and the tribulations we go through, if we can be able to see it as God's hand, because we have, we have that trust in him that he has our best interests at heart, if we can see that and, and really believe that, then that, that shows a, a deep and profound trust in God that is not necessarily just normal. First John chapter 5. I mean, this is what John writes in First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5 and verse 14 where he says, Now this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So we have, if, if we, do we have a confidence that he's hearing us? Do we trust him enough that he sees the big picture? Now this is a very a very personal thing for each of us in our own way, isn't it? I was just reviewing our website on the topic of trust, and I, I came across a, a commentary by our friend Mr. Mike DeSimone here, and he talked about his experience in his early years as an employee and of having to learn a hard lesson about putting trust in God first and then filling in the personal priorities afterwards. And so he wrote about it in the commentary. I think he mentioned, I remember in a sermon here a couple of years ago. Because it, it's all very, it's very personal to us. We have our own experiences. He was sharing his. We all have our own experiences where we, we go through this, this wrestling match with God's help to put God first and recognize that he really has our best interests in, at, at, at heart. Even if it doesn't always seem like it. Maybe Mr. Mr. DeSimone's uh, example was not as powerful as Joseph's, but it, the point was still made. Secondly, God wants us to trust him in terms of another slice, and God wants us to trust him when God's guidance conflicts with what we think or what our heart is or what our opinion is. 
You know, our experience can teach us the wrong lessons, can't it? And actually, as, I, as I'm talking here, it was almost exactly a year ago when Mr. Weston gave his sermon, Can God Trust Us? and talked about this. How sometimes we will frame our own feelings or opinions or perspective as God's. But our experience, our feelings, can teach us wrong lessons, can't they? Our experience can teach us, for example, that everyone is out to get us. You know, we go through difficulties, and it just seems sometimes like everyone is out to get you. You ever been on the road? Uh, sometimes it seems like on a, sometimes you're driving, and, and it's, it's as if everyone's trying to crash into you. You know, somebody pulls right in front of you, and then somebody runs a, a, a light, and you almost get hit, and, you know... Then you get pulled over by the by the uh, policeman for uh, when you were really not doing anything, but he just had it in for you, or whatever it might be. You know, there are days when it just seems like like everything is going wrong, and so experience can teach us. You know what? Everybody's just out to get me, so I've got to get my own while the getting is good. I've got to look out for number one because if I don't, nobody else is. That's what experience can teach us in this world: the survival of the fittest. Our environment can teach us that the most important principle is human rights. I mean, that's what our environment, that's all the messaging that we're getting. That's what that says. It's, it's all about our rights. You need to demand your rights. You need to stand up for your rights. And yet when we look at the message we have in the scriptures, it's, no, we look at responsibilities, not rights. If you understand, if you look, what, look at the Ten Commandments. And just analyze what's being taught there. Is it about rights? Or is it about us loving our neighbor as opposed to demanding our neighbor love us? But our world can teach us that it's all about, it's about human rights. Our environment can teach us that mankind can solve his own problems, giving enough time and freedom, because that's the message that we get. Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3. We're told very plainly, when God's guidance conflicts with what we think or our heart, we need to trust Him and back off from our own feelings. Recognize or discern that our own feelings are are driving our our mind, because our heart and our thoughts can be misleading. Proverbs 3 and and verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Trust in the Lord. Our own thoughts, our own impressions even, can be can be misleading. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go back to the area I grew up in, southeastern Wisconsin, in, in the Milwaukee area, and uh, I stayed with my sister And um, on, on Friday evening and then on the Sabbath, I was going to drive down to Sussex where we had the TWP, Sabbath services and the TWP. And I thought as I'm going on my way, I'm going to drive by Bob Barthel's. Bob Bar- Barthel's Fruit Farm was a place that I worked in the summers with uh, uh, apple trees and pear, pear trees and strawberries. And so uh, so Barthel's Fruit Farm was on my way a bit. So I pulled in and I drove around, looked to see if anybody was around that, uh, that I would recognize, talk to. Nobody was around. And uh, so I pulled out. As I pulled out, now I had my GPS uh, marked to the house where, where, where I grew up, where uh, my virtual brother and, uh, and I and our family, we, we all grew up in Wisconsin there. And, uh, and so I had it plugged in. I, I'm not going to tell you the address because I don't want this to be advertised because I, who knows where it goes and suddenly, you know, I don't know what happens. But, but so, so I had the address for our house plugged in. And as I'm pulling out, out of Barthel's Fruit Farm, I look down. Now, Breaking the story. For years, I've been telling people with a certain degree of pride that I used to ride my bike to work at Barthel's Fruit Farms, and I, it was eight miles. It's a long ways, long ways to ride a bike. Eight miles. I would go there, come back in the evening, ride another eight miles to get home. It's pretty tough. I was pretty good. I was pretty strong to ride a bike eight miles. And I've been telling people that for 40 years because when I was there in Milwaukee, I was looking at the calendar and it was almost 40 years to the day that I left Germantown, Wisconsin for Ambassador College in Pasadena 40 years ago. It's hard to believe. I've been lying to people for 40 years. Because when I looked 
it said four miles on the GPS. And, and I, I reset it. I put the address in again, you know, and the GPS. And it's like, it said, you know, you're four miles away to your destination, to your house. I said, this cannot be right. But in my mind, I had transposed eight miles round trip into, I ride eight miles to work. And, and that had been cemented in my mind such that that's what I've been telling people. Now, I have revealed a, a very sensitive part of who and what I am. So I'm trusting that you will not share this with anybody else because this is very embarrassing. But to me, it was such a profound lesson that we can, we can actually have something in our mind that we think is right because we tell ourselves enough time we get used to it and we think we're, we're right. And it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I did not intentionally mislead any of you if I told you that I rode eight miles each way to Barthel's fruit farm for work, I was not intentionally misleading you. But it wasn't, wasn't accurate. We can do this in our own mind. Well, we read, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's even more serious, because we read in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that our heart is deceitful. It's not just, it doesn't just trick us or we misremember. Sometimes it's, it's such that we're actually in a state of mind of rebellion or antagonism or bitterness or you name it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. We read, now I, this is a verse, a verse uh, actually I'm in 1 Corinthians, let me keep going here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, we read, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. There's this sense that he's saying, look, we're having to learn to, to put our trust in God that he's going to deliver us. Even as you read of some of the journeys, they thought to go one place, and then they were directed to go another. Uh, and, and we learn this about ourselves and people, that sometimes what we think, what our best plans, our logic, it's, it's not accurate. And God wants us to trust him by looking to the scriptures and making sure that what we're doing or what we're thinking is in harmony with the Scriptures, not at cross-purposes, even though we're trying to wiggle it around to reason with it. No, we need to say, okay, am I truly in harmony with what the Scriptures say? Now, here's an additional step. I've talked about a couple fine-tuning focus points in terms of how God wants us to trust. But, But here's an additional step for power users, okay? Additional step in terms of trust and trusting in God. He wants us to extend trust not only to him, but according to the scriptures, he wants us to extend trust to others. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. You see, God uses humans to teach other humans. And if we only distrust, and we recognize that as we read, in, in, or as I read to you in Jeremiah, that yes, our heart can deceive us. That being said, we are actually designed to, to learn to trust others. Here's an example. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. This is when Philip went to, up to Samaria and began to preach and teach. And it was only because they trusted what he said that we can read this passage. It says, when they believed Philip... As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So, in other words, they trusted in the words that he was saying, and they trusted in him as a messenger of Christ. God uses other people to teach us. He uses others to guide us and to encourage us. That does mean that we have to begin to be willing to extend trust to other people. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 a few pages over, Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 is this section that highlights the characteristics of the Bereans. 
the brief, this is verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness, as opposed to antagonism or as opposed to resistance. They received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were true. So you might say trust but verify. But, but yet trust, we can't go around this world as an island, not willing to trust anybody, no. In fact, if you think about it, we, what we experience in this life and some of the most, the most profound relationships, are, they're built on trust, aren't they? How about marriage, for example? Let's go to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. In this description... Of a good wife here in Proverbs 31. We read in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife. For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. Because trust is an integral part of marriage isn't it. And we have to learn to trust each other. We have to learn to trust the other person's judgment. We have to if we're always doubting. If we're always Critiquing, if we're always looking with a sense of, of disbelief at our, our, our part, what our partner says, does, thinks, and every time that some opportunity is to express some sort of doubt, it's automatically thinking the worst. What kind of marriage do you have? Here we see that the heart of a husband safely trusts her. This is, this is the ideal. This is what is supposed to happen. How about friendships? We read of a couple of friendships. I'm going to point you to them. A friendship between David and Jonathan, for example. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, read the account of David and Jonathan, how, David, how Jonathan was a mentor to David. And, and David loved him. David appreciated him. And Jonathan loved David. He was, he was happy to see his success. You know, and that, that's really the true measure of a teacher, isn't it? A teacher, a mentor, when he sees a, a, the student to, 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 to rise and to learn and to shine, maybe even outshine him or her, that's something that brings him joy. If he's a good mentor, if he's a good teacher. And we see in the, the example of David and Jonathan that, that Jonathan so much loved David and appreciated him and saw in him the potential for the success that he would be one day, that he was willing even on his own part to, to sacrifice his role as king. So trust is built into friendships, or you have no friendship. It's an integral part. So trust has to be extended from one person to another. How about Paul and Timothy in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 4? I'm going to give you the reference and you can study and read that section as an example of the relationship between, between Paul and Timothy. He said in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, For this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So he, he trusted Timothy to be faithful in relating the truths of God. He trusted him, and Timothy trusted in, in Paul. Trusting someone is the first baby step towards a bond with him. In fact, building trust is really what caring for a baby is all about, isn't it? A baby learns to trust his or her parents as a part of that process as they're growing, as they're, they're very young. And the first persons that they trust are their, their parents. God designed us to love one another, to build bonds of care and concern, and to do that, we're required to trust one another, not be an island of suspicion toward everyone else, but to build bridges of trust between us. So part of the trust equation is to extend trust to other people as we, we learn to trust God. Will you be disappointed in other people's, in other people sometimes? Of course. Will they fail to live up to your trust? Of course. Will you need to forgive sometimes when trust is, is tarnished? Of course. Will others need to forgive you when trust is tarnished? Of course. That's our human experience. But, but trust we must. Now let's look at the other side of the coin. I showed you trust and trustworthiness. 
And there is a likelihood that I've gotten them mixed up in the two different colors over the course of the sermon. But there are still two, one way or the other. Trustworthiness. Let's talk about whichever one is the opposite one. Let's talk about trustworthiness now. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were not willing to put their trust in God, and they broke the trust that he had in him. They did not show themselves trustworthy. So trust is a two-way street. Trusting and being worthy of trust fit together. Let's go to Exodus 32, a little bit further down the line in the story. Exodus 32. Exodus 32 and verse 1. This is the episode of the golden calf. And I just want to jump into the the moral of the story here. We see verse 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountains, the people gathered together to Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of, of him. And and. And so what we see after this reflects the other side of the coin, doesn't it? In other words, we see the people did not trust Moses that he would return, and the way they acted then at that point was in an untrustworthy manner. Because when Moses came down and says, what are you doing? You mean, here, I, we come all this way, and, and I say, I'm going to talk to God, I'm away for this period of time, I come back, and now you are doing all of this that we read about in Exodus 32. It's, it's like a, being on a job and having someone, maybe you're working on doing, a, doing framing, and you say, look, can you, can you frame up this side of the building to someone who's helping you? And I'm, I have to go get some materials, and you're gone for a little while. You come back, and the person is sitting eating their lunch, and no work has been done. You say, well, what happened? I've been gone for an hour, and there's nothing that's been done. And the person says, well, I... I thought it was more important to go ahead and eat my tuna fish sandwich here, and I've been doing that for a while. And he said, well, but for an hour? Now, at that point, next time when you have to do a materials run, what are you going to think in terms of, of your helper being able to continue framing around the corner? What are you going to think? They're not, un, they're not trustworthy. They've shown themselves not able to continue the job if you're not standing there helping, watching, whatever. So in this case, what we see is an example of untrustworthiness on the part of the Israelites. The irony is that not long before this incident, they had been given the most amazingly comprehensive guide to building trust. You know where I'm going, don't you? Exodus 20. Look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments are nothing if not trust-building instructions. Just, just read what it says. Verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Number 1, what's the first thing that he says? Trust in me alone. Well, he doesn't say it that way. I said it that way. But he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Trust in me. Not in other gods that you make up. Not in other, other gods that the peoples around worship. Trust in me me. And then secondarily, he says, look, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. So he's, he's saying, this is in a very practical way, he's saying, look, don't, don't begin to look to what you think looks impressive. What are some of the elements that are made into gods and goddesses? Fire, wind, the, 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 the heavens above, the sun, the moon, elements that, that seem to be such that you can place Trust in them because they have power. Um, the, the, the storms, you know, you all, these elements of the, the physical world around us are, you might say, ripe for a carnal mind to put trust in. But, but God says, don't. Don't do that. Don't make any images. Don't look to any physical things. Trust in me. You know, in a sense, that first command is principle-oriented. It gives the principle. In a sense, it gives the target 
of trust in God. And the next commandments are all practical. How, what I do in my day, where the rubber meets the road, how I spend my life. They're action-oriented. They're steps that both teach us to, to, to understand what we should do and to measure the degree to which we trust God. So look at the next one, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Whether it's taking on, actually saying his name in a way that's, that's, that's blasphemous or it's defaming to God, or whether it's taking on the sense of being a, a follower of God, either way, breaking that command shows that we don't take God very seriously. Right? We don't trust, we don't trust that he is, that he really means what he says. And then verse four, or verse eight rather, commandment four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Does it not take trust in God to keep the Sabbath day? He tells us, I will, if you keep the Sabbath day, I will sustain you through seven days on what you work for, what you earn in six. Does that not take trust? Is that not what we read in Exodus when we read about uh, the manna and that whole episode? God was teaching them that they could trust him to take care of them, even though it didn't seem logical. By giving them what they needed in six, what they needed for seven in, in six. So is it not about trusting God, keeping the Sabbath? Now, the interesting thing is that when we move to the next commandment, we find this sort of transition happening. Because we read in verse in verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So as parents, a fundamental desire that we have for our children is for them to trust us. And the reality is we as parents do have their best interests at heart more than any other human being on this earth. And, and we, we know that if you're, if you're a parent. But in turn, we desire for them to be trustworthy so we can give them more responsibility, more opportunities. We desire for them to be more confident in them that they will be able to face the challenges of life wisely and with discretion without being hurt. So to teach them to, to honor parents actually facilitates that issue of trust in, in parents, doesn't it? I mean, it, it contributes to, it builds trust as opposed to facilitating rebellion. The next ones are all about trust and fellow man, aren't they? You shall not murder. Is that not about trust? In other words, can I trust that you won't hurt me? Can I trust that I can turn my, my back on you and you won't stab me in the back? Can you trust that that... Your neighbor is not going to, um, you know, punch you in the nose as you walk down the street and, 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 and worse. It's about trust, isn't it? And then we go on. You shall not commit adultery. Point ta- I think the point is made, isn't it? Can you trust me with your wife? Can I trust you with my wife? You know, do we trust uh, our, each other in terms of our, our relationship that it would not be invaded by, by our neighbor? So adultery is, is about trust, isn't it? And it's about trust in one another, in husband and wife, too. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. These are all, these commands, actually, they exercise, and they all, they build, and they, in practical ways, where the rubber meets the road, they build and define trust. And being trustworthy, don't they? Because it shows how we can think of others, how we can extend that trust to others, and if we're worthy of, of their trust. To trust and be trusted. It's one of our biggest challenges in life. And what I'm asking you to do today is really just a version of what Christ asked of his disciples. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We read, as Christ began to call his disciples, he said, verse 18, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers... Matthew 4, verse 18. Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, cast in a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What was he saying? He was saying, trust me. I have a job in store for you. I trust you to do this job. I believe in you. Believe in me. Follow me. And in Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, and verse 22, that trust was tested even further. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountains by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered, verse 28, him, and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Wow, what a wild account. Asking Peter to trust him so that he would get out of the boat and do something that was physically impossible. Walk on water, unless you're in northern Minnesota. You know, this is, this is, this is not something that can happen. He's asking him to trust in Christ to actually defy the laws of, of, of nature and the creation. That's a pretty big ask, isn't it, wouldn't you say? And yet Peter did it, at least for a second, didn't he? He did it. As long as Peter trusted Christ, we see as we read the account, Christ worked a miracle that allowed Peter to defy gravity. Christ was absolutely trustworthy on his part, and Peter was, was working with a bit of a flash of trust, but it didn't last so long. But it was there, and yet in, in human weakness quickly fading. And we see this later when Peter... On the same night, both boldly defended Christ with a sword, as we read in Matthew 26, and betrayed Christ. But, but you know the rest of the story because we have the New Testament. And the account of Peter's loyalty and of Peter's faithfulness and of Peter's trust in Christ and the years that followed are a matter of record. What's your walking on water challenge today? in which you know you need to extend trust in God, but you're, you're, you're struggling. What one way could you live your trust in God today? What one way in which you aren't today, but you could tomorrow, what one way could you extend that trust? Trust is the glue that binds us together. It's the framework upon which we love, upon which mercy and compassion and and, and all these elements that bind us together, powered by the Holy Spirit, help us to rise above our own human weakness. And trust, trust enriches our lives, doesn't it? I learned trust from my father and mother. I learned to trust them, their wisdom, their judgment, and their care for me and my brothers and sisters. And, and I was also encouraged by the trust that they put in me. Uh, when, when I was 13 or 14 years old, I wanted to prove that I could run our, our front-tined rototiller in the garden and assured my father that I could handle it. If any of you have ever run a front-tined rototiller, you know what a bucking bronco it is. It's, it's, it's going to hit in the ground and you're like this. Okay, but I was assured, my dad, that I could do this. I was up for the job. And I did okay in the garden until I got a little bit close to the, the fence, which was a chicken wire fence along the outside of the garden. And once you get into chicken wire with a front-tine rototiller, it is a big mess in no time at all. And uh, so here I was trying to untangle the mess. I told my dad I could do this. Well, when he got home, you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, get out of the way. You obviously aren't old enough to handle this. I can't believe you even tried to rototill the garden. Stay away from the rototiller. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. Instead, he, he looked at me and the rototiller and the chicken wire fence that was wrapped around the tines, and he said, looks like you've got that under control. <laughs> a few years later, well, quite a few years later, uh, I was uh, uh, at college, and I came home. I brought my my wife-to-be, Christy, to visit my folks in, in Tucson. And uh, we decided we'd go camping in northern Arizona near, near Flagstaff. Uh, my dad, he loved to drive down dirt roads off the, off the beaten track to uh, find good camping spots. And, and so, so we were doing just that this afternoon. And uh, he also liked to shoot rattlesnakes with his 38 Special. So at one point, 
uh, he slammed on the brakes. Here we are driving down this dirt road looking for a camping spot, and he was in the front seat, and my mom and, 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 and Christy and, and me then, and I had a brother there as well at the time. At the time. And so, so we're, we're, uh, we're driving down the road, and he slams on the brakes. He reaches into the glove box, grabs his 38 Special Pistol, and he says, John, come on, let's go. It's a big, it's a big one. And so he jumps out of the, the Jeep, and I jump out of my side, and we ran over to the side of the road after this rattlesnake. Now, now there's a, there's a bit of a, a brushy ditch, and it looked like a, a rattlesnake. It's sort of headed down that way off the side of the road. Now, you'll only understand what happens next if you knew my dad. He said, John, grab my belt and hold on. So I grabbed his belt and I held on. And he proceeded to lean as far as he could over into the ditch, into the brush, to look to see if he could get a shot at that rattlesnake. At that point, needless to say, my wife-to-be was beginning to have second thoughts about what kind of a family she was getting into. She was learning. But you know what I learned? I learned that he trusted me. And a few years after that, when deceivers within the body of the church began to weave a web of doctrinal confusion, and he said, John, they're not teaching the truth. They're not teaching the truth. Don't be taken in. Do your own study and prove the truth. I trusted him, and I did. I believe he trusted me, and he taught me to trust him, and my father and mother taught me what trust was about. I was able to experience that, and we experienced that with our wives, our husbands. There's, a, there's good to being able to trust, and being able to forgive when that trust is broken. That's part of the experience that, that we, we learn from this life. Isn't that what God learns about us? When we, we go to our knees and we say, I'm sorry, I've done it again. And, and, and he looks down on us, we trust, and he says, that's okay, I forgive you. You're going to do better tomorrow. I know you will. I know you can. So let's give it another shot. Isn't that what this is about? I have, then I say personally, have experienced the bond of trust with my family and, and with friends for so many years. So when I talk about trust today, it, it's, it's meaningful to me because of the benefit that I've I've had because of trust that has been shown in me, and, and I know I've benefited from being able to trust others as, as well. And I think you all understand that as you think about your life. And, and we then extend that to thinking, okay, how, how, do we, how do we build that even further? Is this important today? Well, as I said, almost a, a year ago, Mr. Weston gave a sermon titled, Can God Trust Us? And he dealt with the challenges that we face to avoid the temptation to reshape God's guidance. But it's, it's not a matter that it's, it was only relevant then and it's not relevant today. It was relevant as a message then, and it's a relevant topic today, brethren, because we don't trust in this world today. If there's one thing that's lacking, it's trust. We don't trust politicians. We don't trust schools. We don't trust the advertisements that we see. We don't trust the advertisements we hear on the radio, what we see on the Internet. We don't always even trust each other. And it's no wonder this air, the, the distrust that we breathe in our cultural atmosphere was prophesied. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Luke 21 We read about signs of the times and the end of the age, beginning here in verse 7. But we read this characteristic here that's highlighted. He says in verse uh, 13, 14, 15, it talks about being able to, when you're brought before kings because of persecution, he says it will turn out to you, verse 14, as an occasion for testimony. And we know this certainly was, was fulfilled to some degree in these times, uh, 
But we have to expect that we're going to face persecution again if we stand up for what we believe. We cannot hide in caves. And so we have to expect and we have to prepare for persecution again where we'll have to trust that we'll be given the word to say. I will give you, verse 15, or verse 14, Therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which your, all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. We have to recognize that certainly, to some degree, this is about our times. And we are seeing it in spades. Because our world is not a world of trust. And it can divide us even within the body of Christ. It has to some degree already. But we certainly have to be able to be mindful. I mean, if we understand, if we have a heads up that we that an atmosphere of mistrust and distrust is prophesied when we look around us today, shouldn't our antenna be waving? Shouldn't the red flags be going off? That we live in an atmosphere that are, even the bonds of trust between us can be damaged, can be broken, can be torn apart, and, and will be at risk. And we'll need God's spirit and strength to continue to build that trust and also trustworthiness. Romans chapter 8. What does ultimate trust look like? Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider, Paul says then, as you might say, this section is, is the, 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 the expression from the depths of his being about Trust in God and, and an expectation that God is going to see things through. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which we cannot be uttered. We don't even know how to express sometimes our, our desire to be able to, to get past our, our, our challenges that we're facing and ask God for help and, and to see beyond the, 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 the today. He says, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because it makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we all, this resonates with us. When we read this, we say, yeah, that's right. That's right. I know that. Because I trust God, and I want to be worthy of his trust. And this section where he says, then verse 31, expressing how deeply Christ is helping us and, and is there, and that we can trust him, and through his spirit he wants to build that trust in us, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. We can count on this. If we can only be worthy of his trust through his help, we can count on him coming through for us. Who shall separate us, verse 35, from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we can trust that. We can take that to the bank. We can count on that to our dying breath, that, that he will help us. And that he cares for us, loves, loves us, has mercy on us. It says, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Who knows what we're going to face in the days ahead? Things we can't comprehend, I believe. He says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll leave you with a final scripture with this passage. Nahum 
We read Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. I'm going to read the passage. It goes like this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust him. May God count us as part of that group.